Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Um, today we're going to be looking at uh, two separate passages of Scripture. We're going to be kind of covering 1 Chronicles 28 and 29 as we're continuing to look kind of at David and his legacy here at the end of this uh, part of the Game of Thrones series where we're looking at David's reign. And so we're going to read 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 to 10, and then also verse 20 from chapter 28, and then chapter 29, verses 22 through 25. And the reason for that you'll kind of see one's talking about what's going to happen and then the other one's showing it happen. So 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 2 to 10, and then verse 20, and then chapter 29, verses 22 to 25. The verses are there in your little booklet, and they'll also be up here on the screen. I'll be uh, using the New International Version this morning. So hear now the words of our king. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader, and from the house of Judah he chose my family, and from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel in the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. David also said to his Solomon and his son, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord, my God, is with you. He will not fail or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And then in chapter 29, They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. Then they acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time anointing him before the Lord to be ruler and Zadok to be priest. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in the place of his father David. He prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the officers and mighty men, as well as King David's sons, pledged their submission to King Solomon. 
the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor, such as no king over Israel ever had before. Many years ago, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had quite a storied friendship. Near the founding of our country, they had become very good friends and initially enjoyed being with one another and working together. However, certain difficulties arose in their relationship that strained the friendship to the point of breaking. Among these included the fact that John Adams was an ardent abolitionist and believed slavery was wrong and that our country should not allow it, and Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Uh, secondly, Thomas Jefferson was in France leading up to the time of the French Revolution and actually liked the French Revolution. John Adams did not like the French Revolution, thought it was very different than ours, didn't want to be uh, in alignment with France any f longer, and in fact, even started what was known as the quasi-war against France while Jefferson was a fan. And then finally, in the election of 1800 following that quasi-war, it was one of the nastiest elections in all of U.S. history. In fact, if you read the statements that were made, you would think they were coming out of our current political climate, but they were actually the election of 1800. There were all sorts of lies that were passed around about the other candidates, difficult things, and it utterly destroyed their friendship, or so it appeared. But as time went on, people worked and labored, and the friendship began again. They were separated because uh, Jefferson was in Virginia and Adams was up in Massachusetts, but they began writing together. The friendship was restored, and then amazingly enough, they both died on the exact same day, which was the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. They died on July the 4th, 1826. And when you see that, if you like history and you read it, you're glad to see that they overcame all of the struggles and that, in fact, the friendship that had been there was restored at the end. And then they died on this very symbolic day of what had united them together in the first place, which was, in fact, the birth of our nation. And we kind of like that when things are ending well. And Chronicles is telling the story of David, and it ends that way. Samuel tells us there's still some more struggles that were going on in David's life, but in Chronicles, we're seeing all the good things that are happening, and we are seeing how David's life ends well. The covenant is fulfilled. Solomon is going to succeed David, and he's going to build the temple, and that's a good thing. And so as we're concluding in these last several weeks, looking at David's life, we're kind of looking at this ending of fulfillment. Now, when we talk about our text today, this is built back on God's covenant with David, which you can read about in 2 Samuel 7 and also 1 Chronicles 17. And notice David is commenting, kind of giving background, saying, I had a desire to build the house of God. David wanted to build the temple. And so he tells us in verses 2 and 3, listen, I had this desire to build the temple but God came to me and said, no, right desire, you're the wrong person because this temple is going to be a place of peace and you're a man of war. You are a man who has shed blood and therefore you're not going to be the one who is going to build the temple. And just as a little sideline, 
David here is an example. If you ever go through life and you walk with God for very long, there are going to be times that you want to do things, and they are good and right things. And one of the hardest things is when God says, right desire, and the answer is no. You're not the one who's going to get to do that. Someone else is going to do that. And if our theology doesn't allow a place for God to say no like that, we need to change our theology. Because, in fact, it's exactly what he did with David, and we're going to see other examples of that as well this morning, where God does that. So sometimes we want to do something that's good for God and that God is wanting done, but God's answer is, no, it's not you, it's someone else. And the heart of a true worshiper, which David shows here, is we embrace that and we say, okay. What's important is God's will is done. Now, that does not mean because God said no to David doesn't mean that the temple's not going to be built. God chooses Solomon to be king and to build the house. And so notice in verses 5 and 6, he says, Of all of my sons, God chose my son Solomon to sit on the throne and to build the temple. And in fact, this is a key point that David makes three times in verse 5. In verse 6, and a little bit further down in verse 10, he states that Solomon is king because Yahweh chose Solomon to be king. It's not because Solomon won a contest. It's not because Solomon is more gifted. It's not because this is what David wanted. Solomon is king, and Solomon is going to inherit the Davidic covenant because Yahweh has chosen Solomon to do that. So it's the fulfillment of, again, the covenant that you can look at in 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17. It's not just any of David's sons. It's the one that the Lord chooses. That is the one who is going to become the king and who is going to build the temple. So Solomon's chosen by God to do the work. Now this is important for Solomon to understand because Solomon's position as king and Solomon's position as overseeing the work of building the temple is not due to his own merit, nor is it due to his own wisdom, but rather to God's gracious calling in his life. And this calling includes, notice, that he's going to become my son. God says there in verse 6, Solomon, your son's the one who will build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. So the real calling that Solomon is getting here is not so much about building the temple or being the king. It's to be the son of God. That is the highest calling. And everything Solomon can do, or David, or you, or me, comes with uh, God's calling. Everything we do for God is rooted in God's prior calling to make us his sons and daughters. There is nothing you can do that is prior to what God does for you. It is always that way. It is true here with Solomon. Solomon is going to accomplish the work. He inherits the Davidic covenant. He's going to become one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history, but he does all of that because God first chose Solomon. It is always that way in the scripture. Now, what David then does is there's a charge that's given to Solomon. And this charge is to be strong and courageous and do the work. Notice in verses 10 and 20, it's why I read both of them in the text. Because in between, it talks about the preparations. 
But notice here what we're told in verse 10. David says to Solomon, Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. You, you can do this, Solomon, because God has chosen you. And then in verse 20, he says, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So he's telling Solomon here three things. Number one, be strong and courageous. Number two, do the work. And the reason you can be strong and courageous and you can do the work is because Yahweh our God is with you. The Lord is with you. So Solomon, remember these three things. Be strong and courageous. Do the work. The Lord is with you. Now, if you've read your Old Testament very much, have you ever heard the phrase, be strong and courageous before? Who's that said to? Joshua. Because what's going on here is there is a parallel between Moses and David and Joshua and Solomon. The same thing that happened with Moses and Joshua is now happening with David and Solomon. And David is very consciously using the same words to let Solomon know, you stand at a similar place in redemptive history that Joshua did. And Joshua could be strong and courageous. He could do the work. He was successful because Yahweh was with him. And you can be strong and courageous. You can do the work. You can be successful because Yahweh is with you. So notice in Joshua 1, 5 to 7, you can see the exact same words here. Where the Lord speaks and says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers. Be strong and very courageous. Notice the same three things. Be strong and courageous. Do the work of leading them into the land, because I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so notice, I'm going to put a chart up here to show you the parallels between Moses and David and Joshua and Solomon so you can see how all of this is, David's doing this very consciously. Notice that both Moses and David are the great leader by which all other leaders are judged. We are told of Moses in Deuteronomy 34, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. All later leaders of Israel are compared to Moses. Well, David comes along, and David is the king, and who becomes the standard by which all other kings are judged? David, if you keep reading Chronicles, the best you can, that can be said of you as a later king is, you were like David. That's the best praise you can get is, you were like David. And even the best of them, it's like, this guy was great. Not quite as good as David, but he was great. So Moses and David are the leaders by which all others are judged. Joshua and Solomon have the somewhat unenviable position of walking in and following these people. And that's exactly what they're going to have to do. Secondly, notice, however, both Moses and David did not get to complete the work that they wanted to do. Did Moses take the people into the promised land? No, because the law of God cannot get you into the promised land. And so Moses' law dies out in the wilderness. And who leads them in? Joshua leads them into the promised land. David wants to build the temple. Does David, the worshiper par excellence, does he get to build the house of worship? No. Solomon 
is going to build the house of worship. So both David and Moses want to do something and can't, and it is handed over to Joshua and Solomon. And then finally, notice that the covenant is founded with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, as we call it, is founded with Moses, and the Davidic covenant is founded with David. But who inherits the covenant? Joshua and Solomon. So there is this conscious parallel between the two of them. As Joshua was called to complete the work Moses left unfinished, so Solomon is being called, equipped, and commanded to fulfill the Davidic covenant and to build the temple. Now this is important. David is doing this because he's letting Solomon know. Solomon's young. And he's saying, Solomon, God's call and his covenant is a firm foundation for your life. So notice again verse 20. And he says that, be strong and courageous, God is with you. David is seeing that all of God's covenant word is coming true. The promise God had made to him all those years before, despite all the detours we've looked at in this series, it's coming true. And Solomon can now know that he's in his role as king and temple builder, not by chance, but by God's choice and election and covenant. That's why he's in this place. Now this is imperative, and it's got the same effect for you and I, because God's covenant promises and God's presence are the anchor that holds through the storms which blow into every life. If you are here you are going to have things come into your life that are going to make you doubt whether you're going to inherit what God has promised you. That is true for every single believer. And it was true for David. It was true for Solomon. It will be true for you. So notice at this critical juncture, God is letting them know you can be strong, you can be courageous, you can give yourself fully to the work that I'm calling you to do because my covenant is true. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. This is exactly what actually Uh, Charlene was saying last week as she was talking about that God's been speaking to her, that thing about the anchor that holds, which is Jesus and the covenant. And so that's what's going on here with Solomon. Now, here's the interesting thing. That all sounds great, but there is a reality that we have God's covenant, but that covenant calls for our obedience. And therein's going to lie an issue. So by God's covenant, Solomon was established as king. That's why we looked in 1 Chronicles 29. David didn't just say it was going to happen. It did actually happen. Notice in verses 23 and 25, Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father David. So notice here, he's fulfilling the covenant. And what an interesting phrase. Boy, would this be a little bit challenging. You're sitting on the throne of Yahweh. See, that would keep me awake at night. That would be a little bit scary. But that's what Solomon's being told. You're sitting on the throne of the Lord. You are fulfilling the covenant that I gave to David. And notice in verse 25, the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor. So he's sitting on the throne of the Lord, highly exalted, full of royal splendor. And in all of this, Solomon is a type of the Lord Jesus. 
And this is important for us. We're going to keep coming back to this point. Because the real son of David, who sits on the throne of Yahweh, who is exalted and full of royal splendor, is not Solomon. Because the real throne of Yahweh was not sitting in a building in Jerusalem. It is sitting at the right hand of God. So Solomon here is a type. He's a picture. And it's a good thing he's only a picture and not the actual fulfillment because we're going to see, does Solomon keep Yahweh's covenant? No. Very much like you and me. He does not keep the covenant. So God has promised to establish Solomon, but Solomon has to obey. Notice verse 7. I will establish his kingdom forever if, if is a scary word, if he is unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. And it's nice that Yahweh says as is being done at this time because, of course, as we've read along in David's life, it's not always been being done in David's life either. So God's saying, I'm going to fulfill the Davidic covenant through Solomon, and it's a sure foundation that can give Solomon comfort and strength, but Solomon has to obey God's commands. And once again, same pattern that was given to Joshua. Remember, be strong, courageous. Uh, Joshua, do the work. I'm going to be with you. But then what does God tell Joshua in uh, Joshua 1.8? We'll look first at 1 Chronicles 28.8. We'll look at uh, 28.8 where David says, So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God. So that, and this is, notice the interesting phrase, so that you may possess the good land and pass it on as an inheritance. Solomon, obey everything in the book of the law. Obey God's commands to you so that you can possess the land and pass it on. Well, what did God tell Joshua right after he told him be strong and courageous? Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Then, Joshua, you will conquer the land. Then you will hand it on as an inheritance. The same thing is going on. Both Solomon and Joshua have been given God's gracious covenant promises and his call. Both Solomon and Joshua are then called to obey God's word. And this is important for us. They're called to obey God's word because God's covenant promises are never a cause for presumption but rather faith-filled obedience. You can never say, well, I was called by God, and therefore I can do whatever I want. That's not the way it works. When God's call comes, it also brings with it the call for faith-filled obedience. So when you and I receive the call of God, with that call, we are prompted and called not to presume upon the grace of God, but rather to live lives of faith-filled obedience. But now here's the question and the problem. So God's told Solomon, obey, and if you do, I'll be with you forever. Let's use our Bible knowledge here. Does Solomon obey? No. In fact, he does not. He does not. So I want to go back to the original Davidic covenant because God basically in the covenant with David said the types and shadows of Jesus were not going to obey. In 2 Samuel 7, in verses 12 and 13, 
God gave the promise and said, when your days are over, David, and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you. This is Solomon, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who's going to build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the good news. That's the call. But notice what he goes on and says in verses 14 to 16. I will be his father, and he will be my son, which we heard being quoted in chapter 28. When he does wrong, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God in the very covenant said, look, I'm going to establish it, and I will even keep it. I will not remove them from the throne. But if they disobey, if they do not keep the covenant, then I am going to discipline them. And as you read along in the story, which we'll come back and cover in a future series, Solomon obviously ultimately fails. His obedience and his heart were partial and divided. And it led to the same response on the part of the people. They had a divided heart, and they had partial obedience, and so the nations actually physically divided and split apart as a, as a picture of exactly what's going on in Solomon's own heart. And so Israel is divided, and ultimately the people end up going into exile. But here's the thing not to be missed. In spite of that, God's covenant with David stood. The son of David, the new Joshua, the greater Solomon still came. God kept covenant and brought the Lord Jesus, who never wavered in his devotion and who never wavered in his obedience. And this is critical for us to see. This happens because, the, thankfully, the covenant does not depend on Joshua's obedience or Solomon's obedience or your or my obedience. It depends upon the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice what happens. When Jesus comes and he fulfills the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants, he establishes a new covenant which is far superior. Because thanks be to God, in this covenant, when you and I are given commands, we're not only given the command, we're given the means to obey the command. See, the law that was given to Joshua sits aside and tells you what to do and does not raise a finger to help you do it. And then thunders when you don't do it. And that's the same thing that Solomon has to do. But thanks be to God, in the new covenant, it is not that way. Consider what happens in our covenant. You are not just told, do this and you shall live. Instead, you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. You are turned from that which is dead in trespasses and sins to that which is made alive and seated with Christ. You are given a new heart. You are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey God's Word and fully inherit all of God's covenant promises. This covenant is far superior to the old covenant. It is founded on a better mediator. It is founded on a better king. It is founded on a better Joshua, 
whose name, by the way, Joshua, is literally Jesus, just the Hebrew form. Our Joshua, our Solomon, our Moses is far greater than the ones who were types and shadows. Our conqueror leads us into the land of all of God's promises. He grants us rest from works righteousness. This is our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our king, who sits on the royal throne in splendor, is perfect. He rules his kingdom in righteousness, and he leads his people in faith-filled obedience. This is the greater Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you have before you. And thanks be to God. Because if it were up to your obedience and mine, we're going to end up in the same place they ended up. We're going to end up in trouble. But thanks be to God, it is not based on our obedience, but on His. So, how do we apply this word? What does this mean for you and me? There are many things we could look at here, but I want to focus on one thing. As I was seeking the Lord, one thing really came to mind. And that is, do I see that God is faithful to His covenant promises? Do I see that God is faithful to His covenant promises? God gave gracious covenant promises to David. And when those promises were made in 2 Samuel 7, if you've read from 1 Samuel 16 all the way up through 2 Samuel 7, you think, well, David's been pretty good. He's handled things pretty well. And then shortly thereafter, the wheels come off. And so God gives these promises, but David makes a huge mess of everything. And it looks like you would wonder, and even David himself wonders, Lord, are you going to take your spirit from me? Does this mean that everything has fallen off, that I'm removed from the throne, and, and all of the things that come? But God's covenant stands because it's not based on David's faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. And at times it looked like it's not going to come to pass, but David is sitting here and he's telling us, but it did. Despite everything else that went on, despite the mess I made of everything, there sits Solomon. He sits on the throne, and he's going to build the temple, and the people are responding. The dynasty is secured. But here's the scary thing. If I could have gone and sat with David and said, let me let you glimpse into the future. This is going to start well just like your story did, and then the wheels are going to come off even worse than they did with you. He's going to get a thousand wives. He's going to worship foreign gods, and he's even going to bring that mess into the very temple he builds. And the wise man is going to raise a fool of a son, and it's going to look like everything is shattered. But here's the good news, David. The covenant will stand because it's not based on Solomon's faithfulness. It's based on God's faithfulness. Jesus has come to secure every covenant promise for us, ensuring, guaranteeing that God's good purposes will stand in our lives and even after death. David's disobedience does not destroy the covenant. Solomon's disobedience does not destroy the covenant. Your disobedience will not destroy the covenant. Your death is not going to destroy the covenant. God's faithfulness will keep 
the covenant. Now that's truth. Now, here's the question for you and for me. Do circumstances ever tempt me to think that God's good promises to me have failed? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Do you ever hit a time and a place where you look and you say, I know what God's covenant says, but I'm looking at my life. And it's just not, it's not working out. God's word may be true for someone else. Maybe he was faithful to David, but David was David after all. I'm just me. Do you ever get tempted by circumstances to think that God's good promises to you have failed? Now, I'm going to start meddling a little bit further. And what I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now is which covenant promises is the Spirit calling you to grasp by faith today? You may be sitting here and saying, I know God by His Word has guaranteed that my sins are forgiven and my guilt is removed. But I don't think it's so. I think God has banished me to the outer court because my sins, I've come back one too many times. Or maybe it's that God's good plans for you and your family when we, when we did the water baptism a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about God's covenant love to a thousand generations. And maybe that's true for someone else. But I, I don't know if I can grasp that for my family. I look around and things seem to be a mess. Or maybe it's God's plans to restore even after sin has brought destruction. Maybe you can look and you can see a certain area in your life and you're like, I know what God wanted was this, but it appears that sin has derailed that. And it's tempting at that moment to believe when you're outside the garden that redemption's not going to come. Or maybe one last area. God's promise is to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. See, because I could fast forward in the story and God speaks to Israel and says, I gave you the promise through Moses. I gave it to Abraham and to Moses that you would have the land. And I promised a king would sit on a throne and you're in Babylon. No king, no temple, no land. And you are being told your God has failed and the covenant has failed. And God speaks and says, no, the covenant will stand. You may not see it. Your children may not see it. It may be your grandchildren. But I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans to prosper you, to give you shalom, to give you a hope, to give you a future. And I will keep my covenant. I will keep my word. But see, I can read that, but when I feel like I'm in exile, it is hard to believe God's covenant promises stand. So, and maybe it's another one you can come through and you can think of. Maybe it's something related to your health or, 
whatever. I want you to think through those areas. And if you were to ask and say, God, where am I struggling to believe your good promises and purposes are going to stand? That you are going to do what you said you were going to do, not because I'm obedient, but because Jesus is obedient. Not because I've been faithful, but because he's been faithful. Now, the reason I'm asking you to ask the Holy Spirit that is we're going to come to the table. This table's not ceremony. This is the table of the Lord. This is the table uh, of God's covenant. And we are reminded here, and the Holy Spirit comes and ministers to us here, that God's covenant promises for us are secure because Jesus lived in full faith and full obedience. He died in our place, and He was raised for our justification, Paul tells us in Romans 4.25. This table is God's pledge to fulfill every covenant promise to us. Forgiveness of sin, full inheritance as his child. And so what I'm asking, when I'm asking these questions, I want you to be asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, where am I doubting that God's going to fulfill his promise? Ask the Holy Spirit as we come to this table. And I want us to be reminded then that you can be sure God will keep his word. Not because I say so, not even just because he did in the past, because broken body and shed blood guarantee that he's going to do this for you and for me. And so what we're going to do, if you have sin, confess it. But the main focus this morning, I want you to be asking the Holy Spirit. He is here. Ask him, where am I wavering? Where am I thinking God's promise is going to fall flat? It's going to return void for me. Not for the rest of creation, but for me it's going to return void and empty. Let's ask the Lord to minister to us and then to give us faith to believe and to grasp the promise. If you're a visitor with us, we want you to know that this is the Lord's table, and so you are welcome. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a meal for believers. It means that you're trusting, as you're going to hear when I pray in just a couple of moments, in taking the bread and in taking the cup, you are making a statement, my only hope of salvation now and in eternity is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't bring anything but sin and brokenness to the equation. My only hope is Jesus' broken body and shed blood. If you believe that, then we invite you to eat with us. If you're here and you don't believe that, you should let it pass. And then please talk to me afterwards because I would love to talk to you about why the gospel is true. For what I received from the Lord... I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we pray this morning that you would meet us at this sacramental table. Lord, we are not here to do ceremony. We are here to receive from you. So send your spirit and minister to your people. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to distribute the elements. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you regarding these things. If you need a gluten-free option, raise your hand, and it will be brought to you. And then we'll take together in just a couple moments. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Father, you spoke, and the universe came to be. Your word is powerful. You spoke, and you kept covenant with your people. Your word is faithful. Lord Jesus, you are the Word of God, through whom everything was made and through whom everything is sustained. And you are the fulfillment of every covenant, promise, and word of God to us. You are the powerful and faithful Word of God. In your body, you kept the law, fulfilling our obligations to God. And through your obedience, every blessing of God is offered to us. So we give you thanks for your body, forsaking any hope of salvation or inheritance in anything else. Take and eat. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe who brings forth wine from the vine. Father, you graciously made covenant with your people, but we have broken faith with you time and again. So you sent your Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, to be crucified, put to death, and buried for us and for our sins. In taking this cup, we forsake any hope of forgiveness other than the blood of Christ. In taking this cup, we proclaim that by the blood of Christ we are forgiven. We are reconciled and restored. We give you thanks for the blood of Jesus, which has sealed for us the new covenant and our place in it. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, you who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, as part of the new covenant you've been given to regenerate, to fill, and to empower us so that we might no longer be slaves to sin, but experience the joyful liberty of the children of God. Come now upon us, Spirit of the living God, in the fresh fire of Pentecost, Renew and form our hearts and desires and empower us to be obedient servants. Fill us with faith 
to grasp every covenant promise given to us and fill us with the gifts of the covenant that we might serve God and neighbor. To the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we do, I'm going to speak a word of benediction out of the book of Hebrews. And I encourage you to receive God's power and His equipping to go forth. And whatever God's revealed to you, where you've been doubting, to grasp that by faith and live in it this week. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. So be it. Live in the blessing of Jesus this week. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Radio Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.